Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. Today's episode is based on an email interview with Yevgeny Bourbon-Ziki from Ukraine. Rather than using AI to generate his voice, I've decided to use it to synthesize my standard questions where appropriate. I figured the bulk of the episode is my guest speaking, so better to give him a real voice, mine, and use an artificial voice for the less important part. I hope this serves as a reminder that I would love to speak to independent crop breeders from all around the world, regardless of your culture and language. Google Translate, in this case, removed any language barriers between us, and email made the distance irrelevant. So if you're out there in your own little corner of the world, feel free to reach out. Or maybe you know somebody who doesn't listen to podcasts and doesn't use a lot of technology, but you could maybe act as an intermediary for them. In other news, we have an amazing year ahead of us with all sorts of interesting guests in the pipeline. I also recently finished the draft of my next book called Taming the Apocalypse, which is currently sitting on the desk of a few small permaculture presses. This book explores the potential for novel domestications as a response to the unfolding crisis of industrial civilization. And it includes a survey of the entire tree of life for untapped opportunities. And now on to today's episode with Yevgeny Bourbon-Ziki. Hi, Yevgeny. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell the audience a bit about your background to get us started? Hi to all. My name is Yevgeny from Ukraine. Yes, we still have a war, but we continue to live here in the Kiev capital region, 75 kilometers from the place itself, in a godforsaken village where 350 people live. What was the path that led you to crop breeding? There are four of us, me, my grandfather, my wife, and my sister. Can you tell us about your local growing conditions? Our village can be imagined in the following geographical coordinates for simplification at 50 degrees north and 30 degrees east. Our agricultural space oriented the southwest on a small hill with a 1.5 degree slope with an area of around 2.5 hectares. The land is located in a settlement to the north of which, at a distance of three kilometers, there are sandy loams on which a pine forest grows with an area of 800 hectares. On the southern border of our land, there is a floodplain pasture with an area of 30 hectares. Further to the south, a small river of local importance is surrounded by a mature alder forest. Behind it is commercial agricultural land spread over thousands of hectares. The soils of our land are typical podzolized chernozems, low humus and partially alluvial chernozems and meadow soils um, in the lower part of the territory. The northern border is lined with spruce, with the inclusion of linden in the southern row. The western part and eastern part are hedges of viburnum, elder, hawthorn, dogwood, cherries, plums, etc. The northern part is a house with a garden and outbuildings. The southern part is land for agriculture. We have about 570 to 600 millimetres of precipitation each year. In recent years, due to climate change, precipitation is very unstable. The average annual temperature is about plus 7 degrees Celsius. The coldest month is January and the warmest is July. The duration of the frost-free period reaches an average of 160 to 170 days, and the growing season lasts from the second week of April to the third week of October. 
Relative humidity reaches its maximum in autumn and winter, 80 to 85%. There are 15 to 20 dry days with relative humidity below 30% per year. On average, most of them in May. Each season is characterized by its positive and negative climactic conditions. The transition from one season to another usually occurs gradually. Spring is protracted, unstable, with frequent changes of cold and warm weather. Summer is warm, hot and stormy in recent years. Lately, the presence of constant cold wind in spring and autumn during March, April and October, September has become a big problem, which literally slows down the development of plants. The transition to autumn is gradual with frequent return of warm weather. The first half of autumn, as a rule, is dry and warm, so it was this year, even hot and dry. Snow begins to fall in November, but in recent years there has been little winter precipitation in the form of snow. Our land needs little fertilization because of the constant presence of fallen leaves, ground cover plants, and the remnants of vegetative parts. And that allows us to apply only a little ash and chicken droppings, ensuring good harvests. Irrigation is not applied to free growing species of wild plants and their selected, intentionally dispersed neighbors, as well as to most crops of common table vegetables. Watering is used only at the stage of planting seedling material, tomato, eggplant, some cabbages. The main problem with weeds is creeping wheatgrass and other perennial grasses, which occasionally return to our plot. Control is carried out by mechanical removal. Most of the territory is a thinned garden dominated by hazel. In addition, there are apple, pear, cherry and peach trees. The area used by us for intensive cultivation is very small, about 0.25 hectares, mainly for millet and wheat for chickens, melons, potato and other vegetables. There are many pests and it is difficult to list all of them, but their populations are small due to the significant biodiversity of our plot and the neighbouring abandoned one of the same area, as well as extensive pasture in the River Valley floodplain and older forests around the channel. That is, potentially about 50 hectares of land are natural communities that have been formed for more than 60 years of deliberate introduction of species, excluding the period of deforestation in the 1960s and partial ploughing of pasture in the same period. The territory of the settlement has been a wild forest since time immemorial, with a predominance of hornbeam, oak, alder and pine in the north. It began to be settled in the 1760s, reaching the peak of progress first in 1913 and after wars, collectivization, famine and reconstruction in 1970. After 1975, the village began to decline and today only old people who are self-sufficient live here as well as the poor and socially disadvantaged. Today, the village in Ukraine is poverty, lack of work, abandoned houses and gardens, all because of urbanization, globalization, energy decline after the collapse of the USSR and another wave of energy decline after 2020. During this short period, my ancestors living in this settlement from the time of its foundation until today chose for themselves the paths of traditional management of the economy which includes the use of traditional wild plants, which were scattered en masse on the pasture area, as well as the garden borders and boundaries of the territory. Once the neighboring plots belonged to the relatives of my ancestors, who also supported this way of life. So about 15 hectares of land around us were diversified by species in this way. Today, only my grandfather and I support this traditional way of providing food. The number of species fluctuates a lot in certain years and fluctuated before, and of course, Today, there is no longer the range of species my grandfather still remembers. 
Today, the traditional species growing in our territory are a range of wild species. Angelica archangelica, Pusidana ruthenicum, Pimpinella brachycarpa, Tragopogon eucranicus, Anthriscus sylvestris, Agapodium podagraria, Heracleum sphondilium, Chinopodium species, Philopendula vulgaris, Phlamoides tuberosa, Polygonatum multiflorum, Campanula rapunculoides, Cherophyllum bulbosum, Geranium pretens, Onoportum macanthium, Polygonum viviparum. But you just can't list them all. All of them grow on our territory pasture, older forest, willow bushes near the river in neighbouring territories. Our family is researching the literature and records for other plant species suitable for cultivation and propagation, the seeds of which are collected in large quantities and introduced in our system. Our ancestors kept an agricultural and sowing calendar where they made various entries about their food experiments and the improvements they were able to achieve during the constant improvement of techniques and methods. Why did they do this and not grow the usual domesticated species? Because the living conditions were very changeable. Constant wars, raids of Tatars that devastated everything in their path, encroachment of the empire on resources and grain, etc. The records say that it is necessary to systematically spread the family of plants wherever you are, on the roads, at places of rest, temporary shelters, to provide for yourself and others in future travels, for people and livestock, on evacuation routes during raids, and on the landscape where you live to ensure survival. In addition, it is indicated that sowing on the best land, which bears well year after year, brings more fruits, roots and gifts, but they deteriorate faster and often die and give vain hope. Another quote, useless work on improvement produces very delicate plants, which, although they bear fruit well, will not survive without human help. In addition, there are notes of this kind. Always collect seeds of herbs and weeds that you like. Look for them wherever fate takes you. Bring them to your lands. Sow them to renew and replenish herbs and weeds for livestock and yourself. Tell me more about your crop breeding projects. I'll tell you about the plant that my great-grandfather and grandfather were involved in improving. We are talking about hazel or hazelnut. In our land, it was the main food culture. The main goal of the improvement was to attain a rational variety balanced by all criteria, namely, one, an increase in the volume and weight of the fruit, and as a result, an increase in the content of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Two, an increase in the thickness of the walls of the fruit, up to five millimeters, which makes it impossible for pests like weevils to penetrate into the fruit, even at milk ripeness, which, in my opinion, is caused by the choice of other thinner skin varieties by the weevil. Although the thick skin makes it difficult to access the nut, it also prevents the drying of the nut inside. Three, the low location of fruits or nuts on the bush. And four, the low growth of the bushes, which helps to patrol bushes with dogs to prevent squirrels from entering, to minimize damage from them. Another goal was to breed a line of nuts with an increased amount of disaccharides and monosaccharides, i.e. sweetness, Work in this direction continues, as squirrels and birds especially like sweet nuts and damage them first. To date, the task of obtaining nuts of rational variety has been successfully completed, started by my great-grandfather and finished by my grandfather. The problem of this rational variety at the early stage of selection was obtaining two large nuts, which are very picky about growing conditions, especially near water. 
Therefore, high fruiting was rejected as a goal, and the size of the nut increased by only 10% compared to the original wild variety. This variety is stable and propagates by layers. It is the main one in the population in our territory. In addition, there are a large number of other varieties of hazelnuts with which experiments are being conducted on pollination and planting of the obtained nuts in well-prepared conditions in the hope of obtaining a good mutation. In addition, direct natural sowing of any natural hybrids on the territory and checking of their characteristics over time is also carried out. This is how a spontaneous hybrid was obtained, which has a short stature and a huge number of medium-sized fruits with good taste. The pollination strategy for natural hybrids is simple, by wind or bees, which we keep in hives or hollows in tall trees, such as black walnut and cherry. For intentional hybridization, I cover the selected pistillate flowers with plastic tape and pollinate them with pollen from a parent catkin. After pollination, I remove the tape only when I am sure of getting an ovary. I mark such nuts with a coloured thread and write down information about the parental lines and their characteristics in a notebook. I mainly use outbreeding for certain interesting traits. I stratify the obtained nuts in sand in winter and plant them in soil in spring. I look after and observe the stages of development, noting each important stage, time and conditions in a notebook. In approximately three to four and sometimes five years, I get the first harvest, then I allow self-pollination and planting of the obtained crop. And already in the F3 generation, I get the splitting of traits that have various characteristics, which I also study in detail for the inheritance of interesting traits. Unsatisfactory bushes go to creating hedges and fences, as well as fuel for our tiled stove. While on vacation in the Carpathians about three years ago, I was treated to a very sweet hazelnut fruit, but I did not manage to get it to sprout. So I bought two kilos of nuts there, selected the best 25 and stratified them. I later discovered it was a Corylus pontica hybrid. I selected the best phenotype bushes and began to pollinate hybrids of ancestral selection with them. Work in this direction continues today. My great-grandfather and grandfather created hybrids between common hazel, Corylus avellana, with Maxima, Cornuta and Heterophylla. I hand over my work to my son and volunteer friends who sometimes help, and I also write short essays in the local newspaper. I wish people zeal and inspiration. Selection is a matter of generations, an ancestral matter. There is no need to rush to domesticate everything. Study plants. Each has its own unique niche, as do companion animals, especially insects. There are two to three wasps that parasitize every pest on my farm. And for each type of plant, there are two to eight arthropod pests. The biosphere is a constant balancing, leveling of gradients, experimentation and adaptation. We eat many wild plants like our ancestors by soaking in salt water, exposing them to the action of microorganisms, fermenting, pouring with whey, wrapping in leaves and burying in clay, freezing, increasing the level of sweetness for, for viburnum and mountain ash. Natural food is resistant, hardier, spreads, and grows effortlessly. Before the introduction of many cultivars, all my ancestors grew were oats, spelt and rye, and sometimes peas. Everything else was wild. Great reliance was placed on animal husbandry, sour apples and acorns for pigs, itch for horses and bees, hazel for, and birch for goats. I'm sorry with the situation. I'm unable to write more as I had planned to. During the week, the electricity was out for many hours, and I only typed a few sentences. We already have frost and snow, and cooking without electricity requires more effort and concentration. The constant flight of drones and rockets and explosions 
does not allow us to focus on anything but survival. My laptop battery is almost fully discharged, and it almost doesn't work without a network. Back to me for a little bit. I only had a small amount of writing from Evgeny because he had a limited opportunity to write, but it's so humbling to think of somebody toiling on their ancestral farm in the middle of an active war zone who still took the time to share with their work with us. Similar struggles are playing out around the world in Syria, Sri Lanka, Sudan, countless other places. And I've kept in touch with Evgeny since he emailed me all of those details and him and his family are doing okay. So we can only hope and pray that the conflict will end soon. As an Australian, I often wonder what it's like to have a more direct cultural connection to traditional agricultural systems. My part of the world went straight from hunter-gatherer to industrial farming with almost nothing in between. So my work here in many ways is starting from close to nothing. But it's funny, talking with other farmers and plant breeders around the world has made me appreciate the scale of the dislocation which took place just about everywhere between the people and the land. Both Yevgeny and another friend of mine in Bulgaria have told me how the Soviet era broke that connection and how difficult it has been to re-establish it. I also recently reviewed the book Seeing Like a State on my Zero Input Agriculture Substack and was shocked to learn that similar well-meaning projects were forced on the people of Tanzania and Ethiopia in the 70s and 80s. These were especially disastrous in Ethiopia and were a major contributor to the crippling famines in the 1980s that got all of that charitable attention. And our Western media didn't mention the failed modernization of agriculture that was behind it. Efforts like the work of Evgeny and his family to rebuild locally adapted agricultural systems and pass them on to future generations is difficult work, but it's priceless. Even for tree crops, astonishing results can be achieved in just a couple of generations. For annuals, it can be even faster. But I especially appreciate Yevgeny's message to pay attention to the wild plants in your area, not least the ones that people usually call weeds. Deliberate cultivation of vegetables is in many ways a response to a collapse of that wild ecosystem that used to provide for people. In the same way that modern aquaculture is a desperation move in response to falling fish stocks. And don't forget as well that the line between domesticated and wild is fuzzy. And us humans can help develop and steward plants along every point on that spectrum. So that's enough for me. This will be a fairly short episode today, but I hope it was as impactful for you as it was for me. I'm looking forward to interviewing more people like Yevgeny from strange and faraway places and different cultures to cross-pollinate our approaches to the challenges ahead.